Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Ginger Gorman. Ginger's an award-winning print, online, and radio journalist, but for many people, her name will be known for the book Troll Hunting that was published earlier this year. She's also featured in a new collection, Me Too, Stories from the Australian Movement. And today we're going to be discussing trolls, the online world, and the way it's now an inextricable part of our lives. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land, stolen land, that was never ceded. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, as featured every week on 2SER. The Great Conversations podcast, it's a chance to hear more of these discussions, the bits that don't make it to air, the insightful, sometimes the funny, always getting you deeper and into the books that you love. Troll hunting delves into the world of online trolls and the ways their activities shape the digital and in real life lives that we lead. It's a deep dive into the activity of trolls, their networks, and targeting vulnerable individuals. The book explores research into the costs, human, social, and monetary of trolling and the way trolling exerts and controls and inflicts damage on so many lives. Join me as I speak with Ginger Gorman and we discover troll hunting. Now I'm joined on the line by Ginger Gorman. Ginger is an award-winning print, online and radio journalist. Her work has featured, well, look, can I just say that if you bring up a graphic of all the outlets Ginger's work has featured on, it's sort of like a media subscription service. There's BBC, there's ABC, SMH, Triple J. There are some that even have full words, not just letters. But for many people, Ginger's name will be known for the book Troll Hunting. It was published earlier this year, and Troll Hunting delves into the world of online trolls and the ways their activities shape the digital and in real life lives that we lead. Ginger, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Andrew. And, of course, we are chatting ahead of your appearance this weekend at the Sydney Jewish Writers' Festival, where you're going to be in conversation with Kerry Sackville. That's on Sunday, and it's, it's down at Bondi Pavilion. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention to people that they can get tickets at uh, shalom.edu.au, or if you just search Sydney Jewish Writers' Festival, you'll be able to find out all of that info. But... Uh, are we going to give a preview of what you're going to be in conversation about? And, of course, it is this incredible book, Troll Hunting. And, uh, look, you're on Final Draft, and book-loving bunch that we are, we're probably at this strange intersection of analogue and digital. And in reading Troll Hunting, I thought it's going to be really important to clarify some of the terms that will come up in the conversation. Of course, the web is a linguistic wonderland, and it can be really hard to pin down terms in their real-time usage, but can you try and get help us get a handle on things like trolls and trolling, predator trolling and, and te- technology-facilitated abuse that can look really similar but have, have these subtle distinctions? Yeah, so one of the things I did realise when I started writing the book is that the word troll is used in such a broad context now that it almost has no meaning. So, for example, people will call Donald Trump a troll Uh, I was teasing my daughter about something she was eating and my husband said, you're trolling her. You know, so we use it in a way that it is almost meaningless. However, what I started researching was very, very extreme cyber hate, which I came to call predator trolling. So what I mean by predator trolling is 
extreme cyber hate that does real life harm and it might be perpetrated by one or more people against a victim. Now that's the extreme end. The other end is of course, you know, really light pranks, uh, things like Rick Rolling where you accidentally click on a link and it's Rick Astley's song, Never Gonna Give You Up. So some trolling is very lighthearted and funny um, and some trolling has a social purpose uh, for example, I saw some really interesting uh, trolling of Pauline Hanson the other day um, around, you know, she was calling people to tell stories of how, as white people, they had been subject to racism. And people were really just making fun of that online in quite a hilarious way, but it had a social purpose. So I would never say that some trolling isn't useful and some trolling isn't funny, but at that extreme end, you know, we get things like the Christchurch massacre. So that guy was a predator troll. And that guy is the kind of guy in my book. And that real-life harm is happening, you know, daily. It's happening all the time. So my book links predator trolling to murder, to domestic violence, to terrorism, to real-life stalking, to assault. So very serious crimes. And the way these terms can sometimes seem amorphous, sometimes seem to be shifting. It seems to me also at the heart of why it can be so hard to get a handle on things and the ways that trolling can be dismissed when maybe it shouldn't be. But, I mean, even even having a sense of what trolls do can also belie the visceral horror of their attacks. And I know this is a story that is both incredibly difficult for you but also that you've you've obviously had to retell many times. But can you give us a sense of what trolling looks like and how this whole process started for you? Well, so I worked for the ABC for many, many years, nearly two decades, and essentially as a result of something that I had published and broadcast on the ABC, back in 2013 I became subject to an orchestrated online hate campaign and so I was actually on maternity leave with my second daughter when that hatred started rolling in on social media and it was just completely terrifying so I got a death threat we we got a death threat and we also uh, had a picture of our family posted onto a fascist website and lots of foul commentary around that and the combination of those things together was particularly terrifying because my mum's family fled the Holocaust and they were, in fact, um, survivors of that. And some of those family members did perish in the Holocaust. So the death threat coupled with the fascist website and our family photo on there was really terrifying. And the thing that I remember is just really lying in bed late at night and listening to my little baby asleep in the next room, breathing and thinking, you know, did I just put my kids' lives at risk because of my job as a journalist? So that's where it really started for me. I didn't I know anything about trolling before that. I'm not a techie person. I was never particularly interested in the internet. But that moment of pure fear really made me understand how scary it could be and I mean luckily for our family it did die down and we haven't actually been subject to physical violence but lots of journalists are you know there's a woman in my book a journalist called Sherelle Moody Uh, she is not just a journalist but an anti-family violence campaigner and the cyber hate she's subject to is extreme 
And in the course of when I was writing my book, she wrote to me and said, my horse has just been threatened. Someone said they're going to kill my horse. And they did kill her horse. And so her dog was also given acid and poisoned and, and her dog lived. But you can see that these harms don't stay online, basically. They cause real-life harm. And so the idea that this stuff happens in fairyland in this virtual space online and we should just pull our big girl panties up is ludicrous. So I was really exploring in my book the link, the link between those things, like the cyber hate and the real-life harm. And so even though my book goes off in different directions, I was always asking this question, like, what is the real-life harm? And trying to show those direct links. That was a section, well, not not a section, the the entirety of the book obviously deals with this, but seeing those real-life harms and thinking about those implications. I mean, when when this interview was confirmed and I was lucky enough to, I could I took my copy of Troll Hunting down the coast to a place where there was absolutely no service. Um you know, I, I had to contact someone. I had to drive back out to the main road. Um, and it was easy to believe that maybe the digital world was just like, you know, kind of some indulgence and I could live carefree, disconnected by the beach. But you point out there's this false demarcation that's, that our real and online worlds are separate. And pe- people will say, you know, just get off social media. Um, that, I mean, that's ludicrous because, you know, the United Nations has recognised internet access as a human right. And if you think about that, it makes sense. Like, nobody can really be disconnected. Very few of us. Like, in order to get a job, you have to apply for it online. You know, most people have to have some kind of online presence, not just for social reasons, for economic reasons as well. Like, and the idea that you wouldn't be able to, you'd be able to live life without it, it's just like saying, don't drive on the roads, don't drive a car. Like, that isn't actually the reality of our lives. Mm. And not just here in Australia, but across the globe. And, you know, this kind of weird demarcation that people have is, is nonsense. Like, I order my groceries online and they come in real life. Mm. You know, the journalist Catherine Devney, when she made those um, Anzac Day comments, regardless of what you think of them, she got docs online, so all of her personal details got put online. And this youth full of men, threatening men, turned up to her house in real life in the middle of her night, in the middle of the night, and her kids were there, you know. So um, we need to stop thinking that these things are separate. I mean, and that's the same with the Christchurch killer. Like, he was the predator troll. He was on all these forums. I've read all of his uh, posts that he did before that massacre. He was telling people what he was going to do on those white supremacist boards on 8chan and also on Twitter. And though he, a, a cohort of similarly minded predator trolls egged him on and then he went and did it and 50 people died. You know, so we've got to just wake up and stop sort of pulling the wool over our eyes. And it's not just us. I mean, the police are so out of their depth with this stuff. It's not funny. It's incredible how across the globe this has just washed over law enforcement and they really don't have the skills or the resources to deal with it. Yeah, so that digital detox idea, it's this nice fantasy for a weekend. But I wonder, though, even, you know, this idea of being offline, is it naive even to try? Because just not not ourselves, but there are generations now coming of age online and we're... We're digital come lately, you know, you and I, we didn't have social media as part of our, our tween and our teen and whatever the next category of age is. But if we're not in that space, does that mean we then relinquish a say in how it's managed? Like, what? 
I mean, I don't, like, fine if you want a social media break for 48 hours or something, but most people, for example, anyone that has a public profile, sports Mm. people, musicians, uh, journalists, they have to be online. And, you know, I mean, when I worked for the ABC, it was almost a requirement in the social media policy that you would be online. And, you know, at the moment, I'm getting big government departments calling me in a Mm. panic because... They have staff who are being harassed online and assaulted in real life because of it. So it's not realistic mm. to stay offline. And I think if we, you know, there's this idea that if we just stop kids being on phones, it, we can yeah. solve it. That's not true because they need those skills. There are jobs that those kids, our kids, like my daughters, are going to have that we can't even envisage at the moment because technology is changing so fast. And a lot of that is going to be online. So we have to give them online resilience skills and teach them how to manage this stuff instead of pulling the wool over our eyes. The kids' prohibition has never, ever worked. I mean, when has that worked? No. For anything, for any kind of technology or, you know, drugs and alcohol or whatever you're trying to stop your kids doing, you can guarantee that they're not going to do that. They're going to do the opposite. So we have this culture that's shaping and um, as well as troll hunting, you've also contributed to the collection Me Too stories from the Australian movement. And in that discussion, as in troll hunting, you note the parallels between the treatment of victims of online abuse and historically the treatment of domestic violence, particularly, right. particularly yeah, this view that it's somehow a private matter. There's a, a failure to understand where jurisdiction lies. I wondered what you thought about how, how power, how privilege and misogyny intersect in the behaviours and the treatment of trolls and also, also their victims when their victims come forward. Well, so these are really complex questions, Andrew, and I'm glad you've asked them, but they're not that easy to Mm. unpick. So the first thing is that with domestic violence targets or survivors, there is almost 100% crossover with what they call tech abuse in the sector. Mm. Now, this is partly a language problem because a lot of tech abuse is actually just predator trolling. (laughs) So it's like extreme cyber hate against your former partner, which ruins their lives. And... You know, there's a couple of case studies in my book where, you know, one of the women in particular has tried to suicide because of it, because this man has just completely destroyed her. And a lot of it has happened online. So he's really, uh, you know, ruined her reputation, made her unemployable. Uh, she lives in a small town and so forth. These things are very much related to misogyny and domestic violence. And at the moment, I'm reading... Um, Jess Hill's fabulous book, See What You Made Me Do, and you can see a lot of these threads are the same in that book. The outright trolls that I have interviewed really do express that they are angry that their privileges as sort of white males are being taken away from them. And they blame feminism and women for that. And so a lot of what they are expressing, particularly towards white women, but also to women of colour online, is that anger that they, instead of looking at the complex kind of questions in society, like why they don't have economic power, um, you know, why they feel disadvantaged, those young men, they just blame women. And, you know, the misogyny in those cohorts, I mean, that was the thing that made me feel the most hopeless when I was writing the book because it seemed intractable at some point. Unbelievable. These, These are the sort of people, there's no unpacking their invisible backpack. They are a 
aware of privilege. They're not apologetic about it, and they're upset that it's being chipped away. And I just, I wondered on a personal level how you dealt with that outrage because you do talk about this sort of idea that uh, that truth and knowledge are a panacea, but really we we can't. Or it, it seems like this is a circumstance where education is not going to chip away at these people. They are educated and they do know their arguments. Yeah, I mean, this stuff is really hard. But I did, like, so one of the things that's really astounding to some people is that I became friends with some of these guys because I spent up to five years talking to them every day, you know, all the time. Hmm. And um, one of the guys I became friends with is called Meep Sheep and he's president of quite a big powerful trolling syndicate you know that does a lot of um they're not predator trolls actually they usually prank the media and so forth but uh needless to say he is a trump loving you know he was a woman hating gun loving trump loving um reasonably misogynistic troll when i met him and, and sort of leaning towards the outright you know um but one of the things he explained to me that i just found quite revelatory actually was a thing that a lot of them said, but the way he explained it was much clearer to me, just about their childhoods, these guys. So a lot of them come from really violent, damaged childhoods. In his case, he had quite a violent, alcoholic mother. And, um, you know, I understood why he hated women after he talked through some of that stuff with me. And then the other thing they almost universally seem to have in common, these predator trolls, is that they were parented by the internet. So there are, were no parents around at all. They were left alone from the time of 10, somewhere between 10 and 16, online, on the cesspits of the internet. So on 4chan, 8chan, Tumblr, Reddit, these kinds of places, imbibing misogyny, imbibing white supremacy, all these ideologies of hate. And then, you know, they get spat out later as predator trolls. And I don't think we can be amazed about that. Mm. Um, and then I kind of... I, you know, I'm a mum of two little girls. So I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a parenting story, you know? Um, and so I think having that real personal contact with them and kind of going in with radical empathy, with my heart open, my ears open, not uncritical, but just really trying to understand them was how I got to some of that stuff. So I'm not angry with them. I don't, but I do think, you know, this is a problem for our community. Like, these are our children, and if we don't intervene, we then end up with something like the Christchurch massacre. So it's actually an emergency, mm. you know. There, you say that there are children, but they're not all of our children. I mean, there is still that trolls are often white. They're typically male. They're not the stereotypes that we believe. You know, they can be intelligent. They don't have to be social outcasts. They're they're organised. Um, Mark, who is one of the trolls that you discuss in the book, you've inter- yeah. you've interviewed him. He embodies this organised individual. He, you know, comes across as as yeah. Considered- I mean, he he incites people to suicide and things. He's mm. not a sympathetic character. Right. So look, I mean, they're not all the same. I would say that they're not. You know, they've got some common threads and. We know, for example, that trolling is linked to the dark tetrad of personality traits. So um, Machiavellianism, narcissism, psychopathy, and sadism. But sadism is the strongest link. And that means they want to hurt and upset you, right? Mm. So that's a kind of common thread. And Mark, who you're talking about, actually almost embodies those traits perfectly. Like, he has no real empathy for anybody. Um, 
he has what they call cognitive empathy, so he can understand how to hurt and upset you and push your buttons, but he doesn't feel for you. Mm. So he doesn't, um, yeah, he doesn't, you know, he's not sorry for you if he hurts you. So, yeah, like he is a special case, and he was probably the hardest nut to crack, and also I don't, you know, I actually think there's something wrong with him in the sense that it doesn't matter what kind of parenting he had, he probably would have turned out like that anyway. He's a different kettle of fish, you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, terrifying, like absolutely terrifying. And I mean, I am in a really weird relationship with him because he does threaten me, he does threaten my family, and it's a relationship I can't really get out of because, you know, he's in a trolling syndicate that gets people killed, and I know... uh, you know, the law enforcement don't help you. So, look, it was quite dangerous sometimes with the book as a journalist. Um, and I know my husband, uh, he's a person of colour. He's got anxiety. He didn't want me to write the book at some point because he just said, you know, trolling has already done our family so much damage. I just wish you would leave it alone. Mm. I, As I was reading, I... And thinking about the tactics that you describe being used by trolls, the the sort of the weaponizing of things like cognitive dissonance and these bad faith arguments, it occurred to me, it, it started to feel almost like there could be a, a bizarro world version of your book, maybe one that explores the world of social justice warriors and the lefty feminist insert derogatory appellation here. Do you get a sense that in our online lives, sometimes we're splintering reality that people are almost yeah. living in separate worlds. Absolutely. And I mean, I, there's some very funny bits in the book where, you know, they're quite abusive towards me and they call me an SJW, like social mm. justice warrior, which is like their worst, um, you know, insult that they have. Definitely. Like I do think we almost become caricatures of ourselves. Mm. And I suppose that's one of the interesting things about being in conversation with them for so many years was actually, what happened was our humanity came out a lot of times. So when people say to me, how could you make friends with some of these guys? And I was like, well, this is a story of almost coming out from behind the internet and meeting face to face and letting yourselves be human. And, you know, when that happens, it's quite amazing. Like that is, you know, Meep Sheep helped me so much I can't even begin to explain to you how much he helped me with the book he was almost like my translator in this world that I couldn't access because these guys in syndicates it's almost like biker gangs you know they have presidents and vice presidents they all know each other they have their own language they have their own history of all these things that have happened in that community so he I mean I asked him thousands of questions and the help he gave me was unprecedented and I mean I helped him too he's now a much kinder person he's a very different person from when our relationship started but so yes there is a question of how the online world dehumanizes us and how social norms don't apply and social contracts don't apply and we are therefore far more abusive and quick to anger than if we were face to face with people. You know, I I often um, I often wonder what would happen if there were social contracts in place online and how differently we would behave because there's kind of a troll in all of us, really. I mean, who hasn't wanted to be more aggressive online? I have. The, you know, so there's these questions of how do you enforce social norms on the internet and what would the internet look like? 
if we were kinder to each other. That's and that's fascinating to me because these uh, these people, these trolls, are in organisations and they are obviously incredibly organised in the way they can attack people. It strikes me that there is some sort of social contract that binds them, but it doesn't look like anything we know. So I mean, no. the the internet and, has always been that frontier. Yeah, and I mean it's fascinating because so people always ask me what do trolls think of your book, right? Mm. And they're actually really proud of my book which is hilarious, and I haven't been attacked because of the book, really, not by any of the trolls in there or any of those syndicates. And the reason is because, you know, they don't they don't feel heard. Um, and so, like, the book is actually quite, uh, quite representative of them in a way. But, yes, the other thing is, you know, you're saying the moral code doesn't look the same. So... The the other reason I haven't been attacked is because in that universe of trolling, you can't get upset about things. They um, give each other shit all the time. They harass each other all the time. They are nasty to each other all the time. And so as a journalist, that was kind of a gift, you know. I, I could ask them anything and they don't feel that they have a right to be upset about it. So even when I'm criticizing them in the book, it's part of their culture not to care. So it was a very different moral code I was operating in. Um, and you can see that in the book. Like, it is very weird reading some of the ways that they behave and the ways that they justify the ways that they behave. But, yeah, it is a different code. And the other thing is they switch between codes because most of them in real life have girlfriends and jobs and all those things. Hmm. So- you know, so they... Uh, they are switching between that callous online code where they don't care and they attack people and their real lives where they have girlfriends, they have families, they have jobs, and they are using normal social contracts. So in considering this, I started to have a really uncomfortable sense of my own online existence. And I'm sure there are, there are people listening and in your readership who are wondering whether they should be more aware of their digital footprint and what it looks like and who has access to it. But then I thought, if we change our behaviours, does that mean the trolls win? And I, I just wondered, do you have any insights? Is this something you're still working through around how we reconcile ourselves in whatever we come to call the real and online world? Because we're not, it's, it's useless to separate them as we've already discussed. Look, these are hard questions. And me, for example, my digital footprint is such a mess, I could never clean it up because, for example, there's pictures of my family and articles I've wrote, written and so forth. I don't actually think this is really up to individuals to keep themselves safe. I don't think it's up to victims to sort this out. This is like saying, you know, domestic violence victims, what did you do to make the person violent towards you? I believe the structures of society that exist offline to keep us safe need to exist online. So the police, Law enforcement needs to do a lot better, but also the social media companies are an abomination. They, you know, pay almost no tax. They make billions of dollars from our data. They have been whining about fixing social media since 2006 and fixing cyber hate, and they don't. And the reason that they don't is because it doesn't suit their revenue model. So when there's a cyber hate event, they make more money. So the thing is governments need to step in and regulate to enforce the duty of care and they need to be forced to make products like Facebook Live safe before they put it on the market. 
you know, like I went to Facebook a year ago and said this is, Facebook Live isn't safe. They told me it was. And then, you know, the Christchurch massacre obviously was broadcast on Facebook Live. So it's not safe. So the thing is, like, I don't feel like we as individuals need to change except maybe to be kinder online. It's really that these structures to keep us safe need to be better. These issues are discussed in Troll Hunting, and I am discussing them with the author of Troll Hunting, Ginger Gorman. She also appears in the collection Me Too Stories from the uh, Australian Movement. And Ginger's going to be at the Sydney Jewish Writers Festival at Bondi Pavilion on Sunday, August 25th. That's this weekend. Uh, tickets and info are available from shalom.edu.au. And uh, Ginger, I just wanted to end because you're going to be you're going to be on stage. You're going to be talking about your book with Kerry Sackville. I wondered what for you the contrast is like now between online interactions and when you, you get to appear before people discussing the same topics. Oh, that's a hard question. I don't think I've been asked that before. Look, uh, I never expected the book to have such traction. Like, I wrote the book Crying in My Pyjamas in Canberra, you know, and drinking a lot, and I got PTSD and depression from it. Um I did a specialised course of therapy in order to be able to face the public and face the media because I do not want people to die because of what happens online. But it's just incredible to me, the interest. Like, I'm a bit overwhelmed by it, and I'm so heartened by it. Like, um, I know that, for example, the Iranian writer Bruce Sakani is reading my book on Mammoth Island. I know that a head of a major media company in the Philippines is getting outrageously attacked is reading it there. I've... I know that the deputy editor of Times India is reading it because it, trolling is so bad in there, in that country. It's being read in Sri Lanka. You know, it's just being read all over the world, and I never imagined that. And I think the public is really saying to me, you know, we care about this. We want this to be better. This has to change. So that's incredible, you know, that, that we're almost starting a movement. Mm. I think it is a conversation that we were probably too late in starting, but thank thank goodness we're having it now. Thank you, and thank you for being part of the conversation too, Andrew. Thanks, Ginger. That's it for this great conversation with Ginger Gorman. Ginger's book, Troll Hunting, is out now through Hardy Grant Publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. You can click subscribe in your podcast app. We'll get a new conversation every week. My name's Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations. But till then, happy reading.